0: I wanted to start this morning with telling you all about easily one of the biggest disasters of my life, which was my wedding day. It was the biggest disaster. Is my wife here? Oh, Where is she? I don't see her, but that's good. Let me explain. Let me explain why this is a huge disaster. And my wife would agree. It was a total catastrophe. We had four people pass out. Four people up front pass out. Never lock your knees at a wedding. Has anybody passed out from locking their knees at a wedding? I know at least half of you have. Nobody? Just them, I guess. The guy who was playing our song popped out of contact and could not read the lyrics. So halfway through, it gets worse. We had a crazy, senile old man running our sound booth. And why everybody was asked to stand to watch my beautiful wife come down and play all this great Enya music, everybody's facing her. I see him doing this to me. He's just staring at me. He's so wrapped up in the moment. He's staring at me, and he doesn't hit the play button. So my wife walks down in complete awkward (laughs) silence. No joke, it was just this. The entire way. Up until about this point, he starts hitting the play button. And then he turns it off. <laughs> a homeless man showed up in an orange tuxedo. So naturally, what did we do? We gave him a role in our wedding. No joke. We gave him a role in our wedding. and He was to roll out the carpet, but he couldn't do it. I'm going to end it there. I'm just going to leave it there. I'll get more into it in just a minute, but... It, I just want to explain it was an utter train wreck. Now, we have a lot of weddings coming up in our community. I see a couple people over here. Yours will probably be fine. I mean, no guarantees. (laughs) But as horrible as all of that was, there is something far worse we can imagine. That we can imagine. That being the vows. Bear with me. Imagine attending a wedding and the vows go something like this. We're all sitting there, like pretend I'm getting married to this person, and you're all sitting there, and I say something along the lines and reading my special vows, and I say, for better and for fine. Or I say something like, for richer or for middle class. (laughs) Or I say, I vow to love you as long as you're pretty and fit. I'm going to let myself go. As long as you're pretty and fit, I vow to love you and you make me burritos. Or I say something like, through sickness and... No, just gross, never mind. Like... Why does that disturb us? Why is that appalling? And why is that more appalling than a homeless man in an orange tuxedo whose pants kept falling down? No joke! His pants fell down like seven times. (laughs) Why is that more disturbing? Because that is a contractual, transactional intent. Yet what is ironic is our lives are driven by the contractual. Our phones, our internet, our mortgages, our leases, our car notes, our movie pass... We live by the rule that I am going to give, but you must give in return. But the marriage vows are complete opposite. This is why the institution of marriage is so gripping and truly insane for all of these, for those people who are married or want to get married or about to get married. It's insane. In a lot of ways. Because you go and you make these public proclamations, proclamations of promises being made which stand on the premise that I am going to give these things whether or not you give in return. I'm going to forgive whether or not you apologize. I'm going to love whether or not you are lovable. It's an unfair, striking, transcendent approach to, 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 to relationships that originates all in the Bible. It's the notion and it's the theology referred to as, and you probably saw the screen behind me, it's referred to as covenant, covenant. Now, I doubt that any of this language is something that we use today. I doubt anybody, like if you're making a business plan and you're like, Jim, that sounds great, let's make a covenant, like nobody talks like this anymore. It's a bit religious, it's a bit archaic, and I will just tell you, because of that, that's a darn shame. It's a shame. In the Christian faith, God-established covenants, God-established ones, are the very bedrock to the biblical storyline. This is the big artery running through the entire Bible. It ties in all of these random stories over the course of 1,500 years. So much so everyone, Christian or not, assumes or at least knows the Bible is broken up into two sections. The Old Testament and the what? The New Testament. Well... If we study the origins of that, we'd see that would be more accurate to speak of the Bible as having two covenants. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Of course, we've inherited the term testament, you know, testament, and we won't change it, but I'm just saying covenant speaks largely more particular and correct than testament. Peter Gentry, in his book on covenant, says this. He says the covenants are not, are not the central theme of Scripture, Instead, the covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta narrative, and thus it is essential to put them together correctly in order to discern accurately the whole counsel of God. This is rich. This is brimming theology today. Way too much for one sermon or one man to preach. But to start our ascent, we must view these covenants that we're going to talk about today as a skeletal structure of of Scripture. They are the driving force propelling the entire narrative forward within your entire Bible. So then, what exactly are these covenants? What even is a covenant according to God, according to the Bible? We're going to read, and we're going to find out. Hebrews chapter 8, if you have it open, go there. We've been in it for a couple months now. And we're far, I think, pretty good beyond just a halfway point. And the author, who we affectionately call the stranger because of his wild personality, his brilliance, and the fact that he is unknown. Get this. Bear with me. After seven chapters, he makes his point. It took him seven chapters to make his point. No joke. And we go, finally, finally. It shows us why for months he's been going up the switchback trail. He reaches the peak and he, stranger, takes out a flag and he says this. He's going to plant it on the summit. And this is what he says. Look at verse one of chapter eight. He's going to make his point. Now, the point, now, the point in what we are saying is this we have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Then he goes into a long, kind of long rambling summary of what we've been talking about in depthly for the last couple of weeks. If you've been having a hard time tracking with us, just know this, the stranger says. The author of Hebrews says, if you've been having a hard time, just know this. What you've been longing for, what you've been hoping for, what you need, what you want, what you're unsure about for generations, it's here. It's happened. It's Him. We have such a high priest. The same assurance that He's giving the original audience then in the book of Hebrews still echoes into this room today. It's here, He says, it's now. That matters because why? Well, let me show you. Our author, their pastor is saying this because there is a drawing away for his people to leave the church, to enter, or to, to, to even leave the Christian faith, to, to go back to old covenants, to old ways, to old times of rock and roll. And so friends, we know this feeling very well. This is that type of feeling, that type of emotion that we're tempted with all the time. For an example, the current situation is not what we thought, so we daydream and consider what it would be like to have her back. What it would be like if I went back to him. We think about what if I went back to my old job or, or if we move back home. I can only assume people here in LA think about that all the time. I can move back home, free rent, my mom makes eggs. Oh God, why? So we have that emotion. To maybe for some to even go back to an old church. So on and so forth. So we know that nagging feeling that biting feeling that they are dealing with. But there is a greater problem for them. This original audience, that being, for them, it's, it's, it's gone. Your mom making eggs, no. For them, it's gone. What you want to run back to is no more. It's like when you show up to return Timmy's sweater and the grandma says, Timmy's been dead for 40 years. Oh, like that's what it is like. <laughs> And the stranger tells him this with razor-sharp words. Look at verse 5 of chapter 7 in your Bibles. Or chapter 8, whatever one. I forget. They serve a copy in a shadow of heavenly things. More on that in a couple weeks. But the whole point of what he's saying is what you're searching for is a shadow. Then verse 13, he cuts it even deeper. The author, and he says, what is becoming obsolete, growing old, is ready to vanish away. Vanishing like the magician we're going to have at the volunteer party for any of those people who are coming tonight. Yes. Just a little plug for the magician. A shadow. Obsolete. A vanishing. Do you see what's going on here? Anybody remember that? That, that... For Bosco, I'll look right at you. Anybody remember Marty McFly in the Back to the Futures photo? Right? They're all disappearing, right? Has everybody seen the movie? No? Cassandra, you're with me. If you've seen it, we've all seen it. So everybody knows that part. But the entire crux of the movie happens within five seconds. It all builds to a five-second climax. And what is that? Will the dad, will George McFly punch Biff in the face outside the car, or is he tempted to turn around? That exact turning point is where they're at. Will he continue to allow things to vanish and run forward and just go back home? Or will he punch Biff in the face? It's a great analogy, and it kind of stops there because that's as far as they can take it. But that's where we're at. Will you be vanishing or will you punch Biff in the face? That's what we're dealing with. Now, before we dissect it too much, I really just want to make sure that this is clear because I have to give it a bit of a caveat because I even believe, as probably a Bible teacher, I may have done a disservice. And what I mean is this. If anybody here, as a Christian or a Jesus follower, wants to hold Jewish rituals and still practice a literal um, Sabbath or not eating certain foods, fine. Who cares? Do it. Whatever. This isn't about just old ways. This is something deeper. That's not the issue here. The stranger, our author, the book of Hebrews, is not worried about old ways as a form of structure. Hebrews will have you in its crosshairs if those old ways are a form of salvation. They are trying to reroute their salvation. It's not about just old ways. They're trying to reroute their salvation. Now, this is something that bends our minds in regards to God offers and God establishes. Meaning. Meaning, meaning, too many people with the book of Hebrews portray this idea that Judaism is bad. Too many people think that the church in this letter is bad. Too many think that those old practices, God's old ways, are bad. That is not it. The mind-bending part is they and us don't just need salvation from all of these bad things. That's not it. But to truly receive the good news, we must also turn away from all the reasons of anything we ever did right or true and good as a form of salvation. Are you tracking with me? Sure, they're putting their ultimate hope in wrongdoing by doing good things. They have to leave good, unsinful things. The stranger, their pastor, it's teaching them that their desire for salvation, for forgiveness, for freedom, for for security, for satisfaction, for the longings of transcendence and wonder and eternity, is beyond their sinful, rebellious reach, but it is also beyond their moral, good reach. So I'm not here to dog on Judaism, and neither is he. He's saying it's gone. As a form of salvation, it is no more. So how could this play out for us today, like this? By putting eternal expectations on good and finite products, procedures, and people. By putting eternal expectations on good and finite products, procedures, and people. Why? Faulty, faulty, faulty. None of those things are bad products, procedures, or people. But they are faulty forms of salvation. Hebrews says so itself. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 7 says, for if, they, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need and occasion for a second one. Not only, so the old covenants were provisional. They were temporary in makeup. Then verse 8 of chapter 8, he says, For he finds fault with what? Them. The partnerships he made with them, with these partners, were disobedient, unfaithful, hard-hearted. And they're holding on to the faulty, and it's faulty because it was intended, it wasn't intended to deal with their faultiness. That, that, that's a quite a mouthful. It's faulty because it was not intended to deal with their faultiness. Which creates an issue because God established covenants. For you note takers, you can write this down. Or if you have one of those Hebrew journals. These covenants, their, summa, their summation would be this. If you want to write down like a definition of a covenant, I'll give you this. It's a solemn commitment with a guaranteed covenant. Legal and loving promise. I probably should have put that on the screen. <laughs> a solemn commitment with a guaranteed legal and loving promise. Like we saw a couple weeks ago, a oath that commits people to one another. So let me, you can say it this way. Covenants are life and death binding. So when God finds fault in the other half of a partnership, guess what? It's dangerous. As we saw a couple weeks ago, to not uphold your end of the bargain, you are like a slaughtered animal cut open, an animal cut in half. This symbolizing the curse that will fall upon you if your side of the covenant is not fulfilled. And yet, and yet, what we read covenant after covenant in the Old Testament, I actually have a screen to show you just so you guys get a general idea of these massive covenants. Adam, the archetype of the entire human race, to live at at peace with God. Noah, the covenant highlighting the sanctity of human life. uh, The nation's father, Abraham, the covenant of promising great blessings to his descendants. The nation leader, Moses, so that God would be able to dwell with his people, to follow the law. King David, so that all of his people would be heirs. Each one of these partners failed, 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 and failed. So I want us to sit that with that. Covenant after covenant after covenant after covenant, failed, failed, failed. The partnership falling apart, falling apart. Why doesn't God catch on? Why isn't God catching on and going, geez, these guys are not getting it? Why doesn't God go, fine, just do five of the commandments, just five, forget the ten. <laughs> Why does he just say forget it? Anytime my kid can't do something, more often than that, I'm like, fine, do half your chores, just leave me alone. <laughs> just joking. I don't treat my daughter that way. Anyway, so, but isn't that odd? God hasn't learned his lesson. God has not learned his lesson. God keeps his standards, which leaves the Hebrew people all the way to the original audience of the stranger saying, okay, then, how? If you're not going to lower your standard, how is this going to work? How is this going to work? How do we relate? How do we move forward, God? What hope does this nation have in a failing society to failing, you know, our, our, our failings? What assurance of salvation can we have as sin runs rampant in our hearts? What priest could do this? What king could make this happen? What temple sacrifice could meet your standard, God? So imagine, that's the question that's been in their heart for generations, for centuries. That's what they're dealing with. Okay, then how? You're not going to change your standard. So with that tension drawing inside of us, with that tension building, imagine then you're sitting there. And the stranger, their pastor, says this. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Oh. 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 And by Jesus Christ being the high priest, making him in chapter 7, verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So what I want to do right now is read this better covenant. I'm going to read in its fullest just so that we get the full effect. The old covenants are no more. They have vanished. Now we have a guarantee of a new covenant from a a, a high priest. So it's starting in verse 8 of chapter 8. It says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a what? A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them. That lack of concern means that God allowed them to experience the curse of a failed covenant, exile and defeat. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Here it comes. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And, I, and they shall not teach, each one, each one his neighbor, and each one brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What we just read is considered, no, it is, I mean, it is, it, it is the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. It's from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Hopefully, everybody's starting to see that Hebrews is the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. And from such a long quotation, you'd expect a long commentary, but there's nothing. The stranger doesn't give a word to it, no commentary. He says virtually nothing about it. Why? Because the new covenant says it all. Lights begin to illuminate in their minds and the stranger reminds them of four major constructed towers that the new covenant promises and is incapable of failing. I do want to go over them because hopefully they're a game changer. They're very sweet. Look at verse 10. This is so great. This is one of the four major constructed like towers of covenantal promises within the new covenant. It says, verse 10, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. That is graphic. I don't think anybody wants to have somebody write something on your human heart. That's heavy. Another Old Testament book, Ezekiel, speaks this. Actually, before, I just want everybody to get this. As graphic as this is, this new covenant is the promise of a new heart. So God doesn't lower his standard. He transforms our hearts. Does everybody... Flying with that? How are we supposed to do this, God? How you don't lower your standards? God goes, yes, I'm not going to change my standards. I'm going to change you. This is how he does it. Ezekiel in the Old Testament says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is going to change you, not my laws. A regenerated heart and nature that only comes by the power and presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. Before this, the law, just so we know, was a bit irksome to these people. It was a bit irksome, knowing it was so faulty, knowing that they were so faulty. But now, our hearts are law-shaped so that it fits perfectly. Thus, living in accordance with what Christ has done by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, it is a joy. The law is now a joy, what was once irksome. So, up to this point, and this is so epic, I love this. Everything about their faith, about their belief, was external and, 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 and earthly. External and earthly. Come here to worship, come here to, to, to sacrifice, right? On, not their heart, on tablets of stone, temples built with bricks. But now he's saying everything is heavenly and internal. Internally, experientially, in the sense that whatever God requires of us in some terms of obedience, he provides with us in terms of his spirit's internal enabling power. So if God says, do this, I will provide you the means and the person to be able to do it. So this doesn't happen, and I hope everybody realizes by us going, oh, hey, cool, Christian rules. I'm going to go out and I'm going to think harder. I'm going to work harder. I'm going to force this by act of will. No, no, no. But by the the Spirit giving us and drawing us towards new affections. I don't want anybody here to think harder and just read harder and pray harder. That's not what's going to do it. The Holy Spirit draws us to new affections. What do we have these affections for? Look at verse 10. This is the new affection, and this is so beautiful. It says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Covenants at their most primal level tell the story of God's radical desire to enter relationship with his people, with you and with me. And Jeremiah 31 uses the title of God as a husband and his unfaithful bride, his people. So the new covenant is a vow. You can think of it as a marriage vow of sorts, an oath, as we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. So, are we getting this? God is saying to you, for better or for worse. God is saying to you, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, I am yours and you are mine. God obligates himself with solemn promises on your worst of moments, to you and to me. At your grossest of moments, God obligates himself to be there as a husband would to a wife. So the affections isn't simply that God exists. Rather, he is my God. He is your God. He belongs to you. God belongs to you. And now if that sounds scandalous, good. Then we are starting to get the gospel of the new covenant when that starts to sound scandalous. I think author C.S. Lewis' quote fits here so nicely. He kind of breaks down these different affections or views of God. He goes, an impersonal God, well and good. Excuse me. A subjective God of beauty, truth, goodness inside our own heads. Better still, a formless life force surging through us. A vast power which we can tap best of all. But God himself, alive pulling at the the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, the king, husband. Now that is quite another matter. So we have a new heart. We have this possession, this personal nature with God. The third one, verse 11, talks about knowing the Lord. And they all shall know me. If you'll bear with me, I want to save that one. With your permission, and I want to go to the fourth one. It's a little out of order, but just bear with me. Look at number 12, or verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Remember, when verses in the Bible start with the word for, that's his concluding argument. For it's giving the reason why we can have intimacy, insight, and the internal. Because God has removed. Be thankful doesn't say God has forgotten, and all of a sudden one day he's gonna be like, oh, right. Right, Kevin screwed up in Greece. That's right, I gotta go bust him. No, 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 God has not forgotten. God decides to remember no more. It has been removed. All the rebellious covenant breakage has been removed. We remember our sins and hold ourselves to our sins and hold ourselves to our excuses far more than God would ever do. We're the ones who hold on to our own sins. God's like, what are you talking about? I don't remember that. All because, look at verse 8, one again, we have such a high priest. Now listen carefully. These four towers, and this is, I've been really wanting to get to this part. These four towers, if used as a refuge, collective church, if they are used as a refuge, something happens. Something happens. You want to know if you are living in light of the new covenant? then particularly, we will see two main effects in our life. One being we experience vertical, covenantal union. Second being we see horizontal, covenantal unifying. First, the horizontal. If we, if you, and I'm going to talk heavily as your pastor... If we have complete assurance in the new covenant, if we have complete assurance that we've been given a new heart, that our sins are remembered no more, that we are not who we were, that leads to a full relationship to one another. Full stop. None of that California stop at a stop saying, no, 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 full stop. I'm gonna lay this on thick. Christ's covenantal commitment to us pushes us, requires us mandates us, commands of us, our commitment to one another. I cannot stress this enough to my favorite church, you guys, my favorite people. Now, if you're thinking, here goes Casey with negative scrutiny about involvement in the church, no. No, 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 no. You all know that's important. I don't need to get into that. 400% of our church serves. It's insane. I don't get how the numbers work, but it works. A community which is alive, though, has a covenantal unifying, which looks around and heralds, I don't demand this of you. It doesn't herald, I don't demand this of you. It heralds, I become this for you. That's to be our covenantal approach to one another, to church. We, as a church, are to refuse to succeed any other way. So if we have an option to succeed here as a church... That is, apart from covenantal unifying with one another, where we start demanding things, we will refuse the living crap out of it. That's what April said, which I thought was so beautiful, as we heard earlier. That despite what our music sounds like, despite how imperfect my preaching is, despite a way you are greeted or not, despite the flavor of our coffee, despite the discipleship group and your members maybe lacking in responsibility, despite our attendance, that despite anybody's lack, despite not having friends here or not, it will not detour us. It will not off course us. I would love for us to assess ourselves on how we approach Jesus the husband and, and the church his bride. I would love for us to assess this in four areas. We've been hitting on this all morning. So I have it, if you have it, Grayson, this. And they're all C's to be rememberable for all of you. It took me 72 days to come up with four C's. <laughs> Such a pity laugh. <laughs> I want us to take these four times into response. These four things behind us of how we deal with Jesus, the husband, and bride, the church. There are four will statements that I think would really bring these to life. The curious asks, what will you do? What will I do? That's what the curious comes and checks out the community or checks out groups. What will you do? The consumer approaches God saying, I will do nothing. The contractual approaches God in the church saying, I will if. If. The covenantal approaches saying, I will despite. I will whether or not. I will through good and through bad. That is a marriage vow. That is a familia. That is a family vow. That is what we long for here within our community. A covenantal approach. A covenantal understanding where we look at one another going, whether or not I will. Which one might be you? So, first, horizontal covenantal unifying in the church. And second, we experience vertical covenantal union. Uh, Kierkegaard tells a teeny little short story, and I believe it's called The Maiden. I'm not quite sure, but he tells a story of a king who fell in love with a beautiful, beautiful peasant. But he was always distraught. I love her, but I'm the king. If I go down here, sure she could use me. She could use my power, she could use my acclaim, she could use my money. I'm too fearful to interact with her based on on how I am. So the the king did the unthinkable. He dressed himself in peasant clothing, he moved into the village, and he worked day and night to win her heart. Day and night. In some sense, that is the story of the new covenant. This husband and wife tale. God did not come into power play and demand morality or good ethics. God came in small, vulnerable, meager, peasant-like humility to win our hearts, to look man, to look woman in the eye, to know them and to be known. This aspect of know the Lord, which was the third point in the new covenant, as it so powerfully claimed, is not to be Missed. As if we, you know, oh, yeah, I know the neighbor down the street. Or I know that person over there. Or, yeah, I know a distant, distant cousin. I know them. No, 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 no. This knowing, this knowing that word is the deepest form of intimacy there is on this planet. When the Bible talks about this in human relationships, it means intercourse or the highest possible peak of friendship. When it talks about they knew them or they knew me. And now here we have the Lord saying, know me. It speaks of, uh, it's a word, to be honest, of of unfailing endearment that this new covenant stands for. And words fail. Words really fail to describe this, but that's okay, because knowing is to be experienced. It's it's this internal understanding. It's his internal faith. So maybe we can make that a prayer to actually, in, in Make that our prayer today, that we would know this level, have this level of knowing the Lord, the deepest form of intimacy there is. Maybe, and again, I encourage as your friend and as a pastor here, make that your prayer today. There will be people up against that wall and up against that wall wearing lanyards. Go to them. They're incredible people. They're our prayer team, form lines, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just go, do, receive prayer. If you have needs, struggles, concerns, unknown, go to them. Go to them. Take your fiancé, take your husband, take your spouse and go to them. Second, we're going to sing in just a little bit as well, but I want us to think about this. What if we didn't sing with or respond in worship with a consumer or contractual voice? But what if we sang with a new covenantal heart? Meaning we sang loud even if we didn't like the song. If it ministered to that person, I want to join in how they're being ministered to. What if we raised our arms as a sign of surrender, even if others weren't? And lastly, we have communion up here in the front. I'm going to read you Jesus' own words. He says, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, And he took bread, and we had given them thanks. He broke it and gave to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, and saying, This cup that is poured out for you is what? Is what? is the new covenant in my blood. Hours before his crucifixion, Jesus took a piece of bread and he broke it in half. Just like the slaughtered animals would have been when the covenants would have been broken or the curse would have been called upon him. He broke it in half, a representation of his body. That's up here in the double stack cups because he took the penalty and the curse for us. So Christ's invitation to a covenantal relationship is proven to the fullest. For some of you getting married, you're going to say vows. I'm going to be honest. I'm looking at married or engaged people, sorry. But you're going to say vows that you really hope but you have no idea if they're going to commit to. It's unknown. We hope so. Christ did it all on the front end and says, look at the depths I've gone to prove to you my covenantal relationship. That, my friends, is a level of certainty that I need in my life, that. I don't know about you, but that's a level of certainty I need. Let's pray.